From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 278 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Happy New Year to you as well, Michael, and everyone else out there. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And I had a great Christmas with my family and a very nice New Year's quiet. I just, um, our court had a gathering um, outdoors and it, I don't like cold weather. (laughs) So (laughs) I did not last till midnight, even though I was dressed for the Arctic. But Mm. otherwise, it was very nice. How How was your holiday season? It wasn't bad, you know, got time with uh, with friends, with family, and, uh, you know, it was a mild Christmas for us, unfortunately, but then on, we kind of had a, a, we were a week late on everything, because then on New Year's Eve, that temperature dropped, and uh, it got into the upper 40s on New Year's Eve, so if we could have had that on Christmas, that would have, that would have been perfect, but it came a week late. Um, it's, it, it's fine, though, you know, I got to watch pretty much every Christmas movie, uh, holiday-oriented movie that I wanted to watch. Got a got a couple new ones in, have some to add to the list that I missed out on this year for priority for next year. So ultimately, I can't p- complain. The only thing I didn't get to do is I didn't get to read anything at all. So yeah, that was a disappointment. But besides that, yeah, I, I had a good holiday season. Good, good. I did um, read A Christmas Carol. This year, that's always my tradition. So that was part of my December reading. I read a lot of other things, too. Yeah, (laughs) I I had, you know, I tell myself every year I'm going to read Christmas books uh, because I have so many. And this was a year where I told myself, like, you know what, let's be realistic. If you don't read one by the end of November, you're not going to read any at all. And that came and went and was like, I'm not going to. So then I, I looked at my stack of uh, biographies because I have been taking advantage the past couple of years of Barnes and Noble's uh, post-Christmas uh, hardcover book sale that they do. And so I was like, I've, I, I go in there and I only buy like autobiographies and, you know, some Disney hardcover books that I don't have. And I was like, I, I got to get through more biographies if I'm going to add more to the collection this year. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up reading absolutely nothing and added, yeah. you know, eight more books <laughs> to the pile. So well, uh, next year, read Charles Dickens. You can read a Charles Dickens biography for Christmas next year. I, I think that one's a paper. He had an interesting life. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I bought a collection. We have a, a independent bookstore on our historic street in our um, in the area in the part of our town that was built during the gold rush where our town started, and it's a collection of Christmas stories. And I thought, oh, I'll read this. The font is so tiny, and I thought, <laughs> what is going on? That it's not the first book I've gotten where the font is so excruciatingly small it's not fun to read the book and i thought there has to be a minimum font size there just needs to be a rule in the publishing world you can't go below a certain font size yeah um, i've had plenty of times where i pick up a book and i open it up and see the size of the font and i say you know what that's that's ripe to be an audiobook or i will come back to that at some point in time later on in my life if I can't track down an audiobook and I'll, I'll deal with it then. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to have to invest in a magnifying glass to read a couple of the books I have. Yeah, so you get one of those but, big rigs where you put it on the, the arm and then you just swing it in front of your <laughs> face and perfect. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I'd like that in bed. <laughs> so I like to do a lot of my reading. <laughs> anyway. But we'd like to wish all our listeners a very happy new year. And thank you for supporting Connecting with Walt and the Diz Unlimited. If it were not for you, we would not be here bringing you another year of Disney history. But we're sad to be starting out the new year with the news of the passing of some Disney legends during our holiday hiatus. First one it was Dick Nunes, uh, the former chairman of Walt Disney Attractions and a 44-year cast member. He passed away on December 13th, 2023, at the age of 91. His Disney career began as an orientation and training instructor in 1955, before the opening of Disneyland in Anaheim, California. He later said he was earning $1.80 an hour. Van France and Dick Nunes successfully trained all of the class of 55, who were starting with the park opening. Even Walt Disney himself took this training. So Dick was promoted to attraction supervisor and developed many of the standard operating procedures for Disneyland attractions, many of which are still used today in the park. In 1961, he became director of park operations and started working on the mysterious Project X, which later became known as Walt Disney World. From 1967 to 1974, Nunes also served as chairman of the Park Operations Committee at Disneyland. He became vice president of operations in 1968. In 1971, he was named executive vice president of Disneyland and the new Walt Disney World Resort. Uh, you might all remember the story that we shared um, early on in, in connecting with Walt um, when on the night before the opening day of Walt Disney World, they were running behind. And so he convinced a group of Disney executives to help him lay the lawn on the contemporary resort. So when they said they'd never done anything like that, Dick uh, just sort of uh, cheered them on by shouting, green side up. And he worked (laughs) right alongside them. And it was finished in time for the first guests to drive by and also, most importantly, the camera crews. So of course that the the sod was replaced later with uh, more permanent sod. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, guests 
always meant a lot to Dick. And he and his wife had a saying that there is a mirror to your smile. That is, when you smile at people, they're more prone to smile back. And it's part of why it was so important for cast members to be so friendly. So Nunes retired from the company in May 1999. He was named an official Disney legend that year and received the windows above Disneyland's Main Street USA, which is located above the Disney Showcase on Main Street USA. And it reads, Coast to Coast People Moving, World Leader in Leisure Management, Dick Nunes Proprietor, founded 1955 offices in Anaheim, Orlando, Tokyo, Wave Machines a Specialty. Of course, um, his offices are in all those air- lands, be- those countries, because that is, he opened all those parks. And um, the wave machine refers to the wave machine that Dick had installed in the water in front of the Polynesian Resort back when it was, I guess, safe to swim in the Seven Seas Lagoon because he liked uh, surfing. But it led to erosion, and it was finally shut down. But he got his wave machine when the Typhoon Lagoon opened in 1989. At the Magic Kingdom, his window is above the Main Street Bakery and reads, The Original Dick Nunes Gym. So he was very athletic. He played, I think he played um, football for USC until he had an injury. So in 2022, Nunes chronicled his career in Walt's Apprentice, keeping the Disney dream alive, which included theme park stories and tales from the 1960 Winter Olympics that he helped Walt um, put together and the 1964-65 New York World's Fair that he also worked on. Nunes also served as a member of the Board of Trustees at the University of Central Florida, where he and his wife Mary were financial supporters, and he had a strong interest in the athletics program. He was a native of Cedartown, Georgia, and he earned a football scholarship at the University of Southern California. He graduated in 1955 before working at Disneyland. He had also been a director of Give Kids the World, a nonprofit organization that provides vacations to critically ill children and their families. Um, Dick Nunes is survived by his wife, two sons, a daughter, and six grandchildren. And, and he and his wife adopted Orlando as their um, hometown when they moved to Florida for the Walt Disney world project. It it fit well with him, with his, uh, with his lifestyle, like the way his, his appearance gave off. It just, he like, he just kind of had that vibe of, you could tell he was either like a native Orlando, uh, Florida type person, or, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of California vibes in there, but I, I feel like he fit in well in, in Disney world in Orlando. Yeah. And he really carried on Walt's legacy in the park and um, in his ideals and all that. And I heard him talk at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and he was a delight. He had so many stories. And he really was responsible for many of the things that we enjoy about the parks to this day. Um, I, you know, 
you've been able to hear way more Disney legends than I have in my time, uh, be able to speak at, you know, at the Walt Disney Family Museum, at Destination D's, at D23 Expo. But I'll, we've talked about it before. I'll go back to it. When he spoke at the, at the 2021 Destination D event, that was one of the best presentations I have seen with any, any Disney legend getting up on stage. You know, it's no offense to the Marty Sklars of the world, Tony Baxter, all of them. They are able to, they were able to, to just weave these great narratives but something about dick noon is just his his background the the depth he had with the company the just his the way he spoke the you know there was there's a a grit to him and he was not afraid to just say everything how it was and it did not think about churching anything up and that just was it was so refreshing and I, I can't think of any panel that I've ever sat through where I was that entertained from, from a Disney legend speaking. So uh, it was so happy. I was in that room. Like I always said about him, he knew where the bodies were buried and he didn't mind telling everyone. He just was at that point <laughs> in his life. <laughs> so. Well, and another Disney legend who died recently is Glynis Johns. Because we know this English actress is the suffragette mother, Mrs. Winifred Banks, in the classic film Mary Poppins. She passed away January 4th, 2024, in an assisted living home in Los Angeles. She was 100 years old. She turned 100 back in October of 2023. John's won a Tony um award for her role as Desiree Armfelt in the original Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music. And she introduced the song Send in the Clouds, Clowns. And a lot of people may not know that song was written specifically for her by Sondheim. In addition, she was an Oscar she was Oscar nominated for her supporting role in 1960's The Sundowners. And according to Variety, she was known for a delightfully husky, breathy voice, a buoyant persona, and when she was young, a charming flirtatiousness. Johns had been acting in England for more than 20 years when she was cast in Walt Disney's adaptation of P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. But the trouble was that Johns thought she had been cast as Mary Poppins. To help the medicine go down, when he told her the news that she had, in fact, been cast as Mrs. Banks, Walt Disney ordered his legendary musical team, the Sherman Brothers, to write a big number for the character. So they made Mrs. Banks a suffragette, which explained why she was away from the house and a nanny was needed. And so John's performed Sister Suffragette in the final film. Now, I think I've shared this story. It was when she realized she was not Mary Poppins and she felt the star of her caliber should be in a starring role. Um, Walt said, Oh, but no, we have this big number written for you and all that. And she wanted to see it. Well, the thing is Walt had just made that up on the spot. And so he said, well, no, we're going to, he said, I'm going to bring you to the studio and, you know, we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we'll introduce it to you and all that. And then he went to the Sherman brothers and said, you need to write a number for, for this character. And then they had to very quickly write Sister Suffragette for Glynis Johns. And then when she heard it performed, she agreed. 
to it. So, because this is going to be, you know, a big number in the film. So, (laughs) I mean, uh, that's a tough part too, because uh, I, I can't imagine Mary Poppins without her, but at the same time, you know, there's not multiple uh, leading roles. You kind of really only have you have Bert, you have Mary, you have uh, I. You know, I don't even know if you can call Mister Banks. He's right on the border of a lead. I think he would mm-hmm. still be on the supporting side of things. So, you know, it's sometimes you just got to put it to the side and accept the the smaller but important songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Johnson made her film debut in 1938 while still a teen, but she didn't break through until 10 years later when she played a mermaid in Miranda. And the role and the sensibility of the film were perfect for her, and she had a hit. So much so that a sequel, Mad About Men, was released in 1954. In Miranda, she performed with David Thomason, who would later portray Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins. John's had a long stage career that saw her make her London debut in 1935. Eight years later, she was starring in Peter Pan, and I read in one obituary she was the youngest actress to ever portray Peter Pan. So on stage, she appeared in many films and television series, including for several episodes as in Batman, that that classic 60s series, as Lady Penelope Pea Soup. I, re- I remember that as a little boy. And on Cheers as the mother of Shelley Long's Diane Chambers. Johns is the daughter of actor Mervyn Johns, and she was accidentally born in Pretoria, South Africa, whilst the family was on a performance tour there. She would later appear with her father in three films, The Halfway House, The Magic Box, and The Sundowners. She starred in other Disney films as Mary Tudor in 1953's The Sword and the Rose, co-starring Richard Todd. As Helen Mary McGregor in Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue, she played the spirited wife of a Scottish freedom fighter. And then in 1994, Johns returned to the Walt Disney Studios to co-star in a touchstone comedy, The Ref, with Kevin Spacey. And the next year, she appeared in Hollywood Pictures' smash hit, while You Were Sleeping, starring Sandra Bullock. Um, she was married and divorced four times, and she is survived by a son, Gareth. And Miss Johns was named a Disney legend in 1998. So, um, Big career. Big career. Huge. I don't think uh, a lot of folks really knew just what a long and amazing career she had both in the United yeah, I, States and in England. I, I certainly did not. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I always knew her from Mary Poppins and I guess I did recognize her from, you know, a couple other, the Disney roles and, and such, but I, I didn't realize, uh, she had done as, as much as she had done. And I'm glad, I'm glad she's a Disney legend and she was made one as early as she was because I, I think about how they currently induct people in as Disney legends and I, it feels like it's almost tougher now. And like if someone who only has like, three or four roles, you know, even if they're like, if it wasn't like Robert Downey Jr., you know, barely any roles in the Disney family, but they were some big ones and that was enough to get him in. But I don't know if she would have made it with 
you know, with being Mrs. Banks and Rob Roy, it's so I, I'm happy she was able to become a Disney legend at at probably a better time when they also looked more towards the classic actors and uh, important animators, Imagineers, a little bit more more fairness with it. I'd like to see them return to that, if anything, in the future. Yeah, although it seemed like I remember us talking about the last Disney Legends we saw where it was just people just appeared on one television show for ABC and they became Disney Legends. Yeah, and, like uh, Patrick Dempsey yeah. and uh, there was one <laughs> other one in there. Yeah, it's it's and it's getting to well, that point where it's like it's either ridiculous like that or it's then, OK, you have to have the most impactful career over 50 years. And if you you do, then you can earn it. It's like, yeah, where, where's that it, nice it's sort medium? of like, yeah, it's it's it felt like they say, OK, we have this many awards to give out this year. How do we fill all these slots? Th- that's what I just felt. It was last time. Yeah. And so. I mean, and then I will never stop and I will never forget the fact that Tom Hanks still is not a Disney legend. How all these other people are, but Tom Hanks is. Yeah. Unless he's turning it down. I don't know. Can you I turn it down? I think they just like throw it on you. you Ron, Ron Miller, Ron Miller has turned it. He turned it down. That's what well, I was maybe. Told. Maybe he has then. Maybe he said, when I'm retired, I'll accept it. But until then, uh, that's the only thing I can think of. Now, I didn't realize that was something you could do. But, I, I mean, it has to be something like that. Otherwise, there can't be a world in which Josh Gad, as much as I enjoyed his <laughs> Legends acceptance speech, there there cannot be a scenario in which Josh Gad is a Disney legend, but Tom Hanks isn't. Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. So, Oh, well. But our, you know, we at the at Dis Unlimited send out our um, condolences to the families of Dick Nunes and Glynis Johns, and and are grateful for the contributions they made that gave us so much delight and enjoyment over the decades. And their legacies will continue because what they did lives on and will delight future generations as well. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in this episode, we are returning to our series on Epcot Center, and we are continuing our walk around what was originally called Future World, and we will now be in the area called World Nature as we explore the history of the Living Seas Pavilion. This was one of Epcot Center's most ambitious projects. The pavilion was dedicated to humanity's relationship with the seas and was most dramatically demonstrated in the huge seawater tank that immerses guests in the watery ocean home of fish and other aquatic animals. The Living Seas was not an opening day pavilion. It was part of Epcot Center's original Phase 2 plans and opened on January 15, 1986. At the dedication of the grand opening of the Living Seas, Mickey Mouse and Frank Wells, president of the Walt Disney Company, dove into the aquarium to officially open the pavilion. The pavilion was constructed by Montgomery Watson and took 22 months to build. It has 185,000 square feet of show space. 
The saltwater tank holds 5.7 million gallons of water and was the largest saltwater tank in the world until the opening of the Georgia Aquarium in 2005. The main tank is 203 feet in diameter, 27 feet deep, and holds 5.7 million gallons of water. It took 27 truckloads of salt to create the watery environment, and the water had to be drawn slowly from multiple wells to protect the water supply. The water is recirculated at 35,000 gallons a minute, with all the water being recirculated every 160 minutes through 10,000 feet of underground pipes. The gravel on the bottom of the tank is made from dolomite. The 61 acrylic windows looking out into the main tank measure 8 feet by 24 feet and weigh 9,000 pounds each. I was going to say the wild part of this entire area, uh, if you've ever done one of the uh, like the dolphin uh, dolphin behind the scenes things at Living Seas or another behind the scenes tour there, you've you've probably been to right in the main center area of where where you can stand right in the center of the tank uh, above it and you look at the water. It does not look that big at all. But then, like, as soon as you get down on the level where you have the observation windows, then all of a sudden it just it opens up and just magnifies it in such a, a huge, huge way. So I was lucky enough a couple months ago to to get to go to um go to that kind of platform area and and talk to a cast member about everything they're doing at the seas and it's just it's it's one of those things add that to your disney bucket list and i again i know you can get there with one of the behind the scenes tours with the dolphins and such it's it's something to definitely do it's 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 incredible to see oh that would be wonderful i will add that to my list i'd enjoy that Now, the main building used 850 tons of structural steel and 900 tons of reinforced steel around the saltwater tank, with walls that are three feet thick in some areas. The building was designed to convey an organic feel of a huge shell, a monstrous wave, a palisade, according to a Disney Press um, release and literature at that time. The entrance to the pavilion featured a rocky coastline with the Living Seas and United Technologies logos displayed. The pavilion was sponsored by United Technologies until 1998. Simulated waves crashed over the rocks every few seconds. To the left and behind this sign is a large mural designed to invoke the feeling of the curving lines of ocean waves with the orange, yellow, and pink colors of a sunset above it. The plants at the base of the mural represent plants that would grow on the ocean floor. What was constructed and opened in 1986 was vastly different from the original concepts advertised by the Walt Disney Company in 1980. The early concept drawing showed a large ocean floor and an all-glass-enclosed visitor center. Clearly, this would be too large and impossible to construct. In the six-page booklet, Walt Disney World Epcot Center, published in 1980, this is how the Seas Pavilion was described. The Seas, opening 1983, 
Visitors to the Seas Pavilion will explore the wonders of the aquatic frontier through two major presentations. First, the world of the sea, a ride-through experience presenting various ocean environments. And second, Sea Base Alpha, a futuristic undersea research station, complete with a 5 million gallon tank supporting a living coral reef community. In World of the Sea, bubble-like vehicles will transport guests through a series of scenes depicting the visual drama of ocean kelp forests, um, abyssal, I don't know how you say that word, abyssal canyons, and other marvelous and mysterious ocean environments. Guests will discover the complex interrelations of the physical and biological systems of the seas. They'll also become aware of the finite nature of the ocean's resources and the vital need to coordinate human endeavors in ways that will ensure the stability of essential marine ecosystems. Arriving at Sea Base Alpha, guests will disembark from their vehicles to explore a myriad of exhibits and participatory demonstrations. Observation modules within the huge tank will provide aquanauts with undersea windows onto the living coral reef community. Two years later, with construction nearing completion, Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom Club put out a publication with the same name, Walt Disney World Epcot Center, but this one was in color and over 50 pages long and contained concept art for all the new attractions coming to Walt Disney World. For the living seas, it says, opening 1984, using Disney magic, the mythical Lord of the Seas will invite guests to embark on an incredible subsea journey. Traveling in pearl-like vehicles, visitors will glide through surrealistic scenes from the mysterious and wondrous environments that make up our planet's oceans. As the vehicles near their final destination, Poseidon challenges us to face the oceans wisely with courage and determination. We then disembark into a startlingly realistic 21st century sea base set within a 6 million gallon coral reef teeming with life. You'll be free to examine a myriad of interesting and exciting demonstrations that reflect 21st century technologies in the world of the living seas. Also in 1982, the Walt Disney Company published a book, Walt Disney's Epcot Center. In the chapter on the Living Seas Pavilion, it described in detail how Poseidon, who represents the power, strength, and uncertainty of the seas, will appear out of a storm and lightning bolt to narrate the first part of the experience as we board bubble-like vehicles that transport us through the cradle-of-life sea sequence narrated by Poseidon. This includes going through a kelp forest and diving down to the intercontinental shelf where we will see its unique life forms. After diving down to the bottom of the sea, we'll come up to a coral reef that is 24 feet deep, 200 feet in diameter, and contains 5.7 million gallons of seawater. This was planned to be a cylinder in the center of the large aquatic tank, separated 
from the water by a wall of acrylic paneling clearer than the glass. Guests would have the impression of being in the ocean. Here we will learn that in the year 2030, humanity is monitoring and managing areas of the ocean in the harmonious way Poseidon had described earlier. In this underwater setting, guests would see fish and sharks, rock forms and plants typically found in the Caribbean. The environment is designed to look like a sea base where man and machines work in harmony with the sea life. There would be divers completing tasks and dolphins trained to work with them. When the ride is over, a television system will enable us to continue to view the divers' activities. One camera is placed on the sea floor. Another is mounted on a robotic device following the divers, and a third would be on a handheld or affixed to a diver's helmet. There would also be four undersea modules, with each concentrating on different activity and developments predicted for the World 2030. The first module would educate guests on undersea technology, including the diving suits of the future, in which an artificial gill would extract oxygen from the ocean, giving divers an unlimited supply of air from the water. The second module would focus on below-surface communication, and guests would listen in on practical and experimental operations from far-off sea bases, including one under the Arctic Ocean. The third module would explain advances in marine sciences, such as the development of a new type of warm-water kelp for food and energy. We'll see how the kelp is farmed and learn that it grows 12 inches per day. The fourth module would deal with communication between humans and sea-dwelling mammals. By use of a translating computer, dolphins would be able to talk with humans. Dolphins would be specially trained to participate in this part of the show. To conclude our experience in the living seas, guests will be able to return to an observation module to pursue in greater depth any act aspects of the show that interests them. Guided tours may be offered of the life support systems that maintain the sea base. If you experience the original pavilion, you know this is not what was constructed. Due to the rising costs of building a saltwater tank, it was decided to take a more scientific approach to the introduction of the pavilion. They replaced Poseidon and the ride with a film, and they drew heavily from the concept artwork created by Imagineer Tim Delaney. So, Craig, what did you think of this concept, the original concept? I'll be honest. We missed out on it because imagine what would have happened if they built this. There could have been a possibility where Ellen never made her way to have an energy adventure. It could have been Ellen (laughs) teaming up with Poseidon to uh, talk about the seas. Um, I I just think of the possibilities there or some other 1990s uh, ABC sitcom star. But, you know, the world was wide open for all of those people. So (laughs) that would have been cool to see when they were finally ready to redo it instead of instead of Nemo. Uh, Ultimately, I'm kind of glad it didn't happen that way. All jokes aside, especially focusing so heavy on uh, 2030, because 
goodness we know now in 2024 that uh they they would <laughs> they would have got a lot wrong uh there is definitely a different viewpoint of the world and you know what maybe maybe that's the problem maybe we needed the positivity of disney in the 80s to to push us forward as as a world to to have good clean oceans better uh, better conservation efforts maybe that would have been the better way but yeah, I, I I don't know about this this version of of the Living Seas. It's just it, it's so unique that it's kind of hard to truly picture what it would have been like uh, moving through there. But it, it, interesting for sure. The concept art is very impressive because I have that book, Walt Disney's Epcot Center, and it's all concept art because it was created before. Epcot Center was built. It's impressive. Very impressive. That's, it's one I don't have, so I'll either need to look up photos for that and uh so I can see it or I'll have to I'll have to finally just get the book. Yeah. So it's out there, definitely. But uh also I think there probably would have been protesters at some point if they had trained dolphins as part of the show. At, sooner or later. I mean, Peta yeah. would have gotten involved. <laughs> Here's the thing: so. the dolphins are still trained to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know that because I watched. I watched when I was at that point that I was talking about inside the the tank area uh, up above in the observation area. We got to watch uh, two dolphins doing art lessons where they were putting uh, a paintbrush, a giant oversized paintbrush in their mouth and creating artwork. And then, you know, they also need exercise and activity. So then we're watching the trainer run them through jumps. So they, they, I think to thrive and keep them as occupied and happy as possible, they still do have to train them in a show style way. But, you know, it's also different when you have a, a stadium full of people or a big group mm-hmm. of people watching a show like that versus, you know, a trainer working with a couple dolphins in an area people can't see. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So let's visit the pavilion shortly after it opened in 1986. So as we approached the pavilion, we passed by the rocks and pavilion sign I described earlier. We followed the mural to the entrance doors. The mission of the pavilion was a better understanding of mankind's reliance on the seas, our past relationship with them, and the role they will play in the future. In the queue area, we wind along a wave-like path called the Eel Queue due to its zigzag path past pictures, artifacts, and models, which takes us through the history of diving. Some of the artifacts include a drawing of Alexander the Great's glass diving barrel from 332 BC, a 16th century diving helmet designed by Flavius Vegetus, oh, oh, Renatus, and Sir Edmund Haley's first diving bell created in 1697, the Klinger diving dress from 1797, and Frederick de Dreberg's 1809 breathing device. Near the end of the queue is a diving suit and an 11-foot model of the Nautilus submarine, both from Walt Disney's film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This queue area was designed to hold about 350 guests. 
Every few minutes, groups of guests were brought into the large oval-shaped holding area, which featured a continuous screen encircling the room. The screen displayed the image of a water surface that would be occasionally interrupted by a countdown clock. On a wall is the United Technologies logo with the motto, High Technology, the Common Denominator of All We Do. Now, Craig, since he was a uh, cast member, uh, he, he is going to help with uh, presenting the, the rest of, of this pavilion with me. So the pre-show that he wasn't a cast member, though, in Living Seas, as you all know, he was no. over in Test Track. So, but he has that voice. He has that cast member voice. So he's going to be helping oh, out oh, here. You're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> so, so the pre-show then begins with the announcer stating... Ladies and gentlemen, United Technologies is proud to welcome you to the Living Seas. In a few moments, you will be entering the Earth's greatest frontier, the oceans. Before your adventure begins, consider for a moment the accomplishments of those courageous pioneers who have come this way before. It was their insatiable curiosity curiosity, (laughs) and engineering (laughs) skill that parted the waves for today's subsea explorers. So then pictures of six pioneers appear across the screen. An old wooden ship sails from one side of the screen to the other, and then humans equipped with inventions for going undersea appear. And then the announcer continues. Throughout history, we humans have faced many challenges in our quest to understand the living seas, to overcome darkness, pressure, and lack of air, we develop diving bells, aqualungs, and submarines, tools which give us a closer look at our underwater world. With new knowledge, we built new tools, robots, and manned submersibles. Each advance in technology brought about the opportunity to explore further and to learn more, transforming vision, curiosity, and wonder into practical knowledge. Now, as each of the tools Craig named um, above, Previously, a picture of that tool appears, and then the narration continues. This tool-building process has created a rich bounty of new ideas from microchips to robotics, from rocket-powered spacesuits to computerized sailing ships. Virtually every aspect of our lives has been enriched by human innovation, and United Technologies is proud to play a leading role in aerospace, electronics, and in providing systems for intelligent buildings – Committing the technology we've created today to the exploration of new frontiers tomorrow. The sounds of waves crashing on a beach are heard. A painting of a man and a woman overlooking the ocean with the woman pointing to a mountain in the distance appears. The narrator then welcomed guests into the next segment of the experience. So come with us now to discover the sea a resource so precious that our own existence depends on its health and well-being, a realm shrouded in mystery, yet possessing enormous potential for humanity. And now, from around the world, the men and women of United Technologies invite you to join us as we cross the threshold into the future of the Living Seas. A slide with the Living Seas Pavilion logo then appears over two doors to pre-show theaters that were used in rotation. A screen surrounds this oval-shaped holding area, and blue and green waves are projected on the screen. 
On the right wall is the Living Seas logo. And underneath the logo are the words, the Living Seas Briefing Room. To the left is a clock that reads five minutes. After a few seconds, the clock disappears into the waves and reappears on the right side of the logo at four minutes and 30 seconds. This back and forth countdown continues until the automatic doors open. The left side of the room also displays the Living Sea logos, but with the words, the Living Sea's hydrolators beneath it. The same music that ran in the original pre-show is heard here. So guests continue to enter the doors to the pre-show area, and they will close with two minutes remaining in the countdown clock. The lights in the entry areas in the front of the doors for both the briefing room and hydrolators snap on, and our narrator returns to say, Welcome to the Living Seas and your journey below the surface of the ocean to Seabase Alpha, our research and discovery facility. You'll soon be exploring the amazing and mysterious environment of our living seas. Your journey begins with an important briefing, a seven-minute presentation introducing you to some of the marvels beneath this surface. The first stop will take place in the briefing room through the doors on your right. Immediately after the briefing, you will board the hydrolators to Seabase Alpha. For those of you who are returning to Seabase Alpha or choose to bypass the presentation, we will be loading you directly into the hydrolator shortly after the briefing begins. The direct entrance to the hydrolators will be through the doors on your left. Whichever route you choose will lead you to many new discoveries about the living seas. When 30 seconds remain on the countdown clock, another announcement is made. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time to embark on your journey to Seabase Alpha. For those of you who wish to begin with our pre-descent briefing, please enter the theater through the open doors now. We especially recommend this for all first-time visitors. Anyone wishing to depart the to depart directly for Seabase Alpha, please stand by. The doors to the theater on the right open. This final announcement is then heard. Ladies and gentlemen, please exit through the open doors and board the hydrolators that are waiting to transport you to Sea Base Alpha. Enjoy your adventure into the living seas. Using the doors on the left, guests proceed through a short hallway and through another set of open doors into the hydrolator boarding area. The gray wall in the hallway is painted with a linear set of upward slanting lines, like forward slashes towards the open doors with the word hydrolators and an arrow centered underneath. The lighted signs above the open doors read hydrolators to sea base now boarding. But since this is our first visit, we will now go through the open doors on the right and enter the briefing room theater. We move into the theater and choose a seat along a long blue bench-like seat. After we are seated, a cast member introduces the C's film, directed by Paul Gerber. This seven-minute film is best remembered for its dramatic lines like, And it rained, and it rained, and it rained, the deluge. Welcome to the Living Seas. Ocean exploration has come a long way. We now have a better understanding of our involvement with the sea. How did it form? When did it form? And what possibilities lie ahead? Possible answers to these and many other questions are about to surface in a dramatic film simply entitled The Sea. Please remain seated and refrain from smoking and flash photography during the show. And now the beauty and splendor of the sea. 
The lights dim and on the screen a galaxy of stars appears, followed by a close-up of the planet Earth. Try to imagine just for a moment that somewhere in the endless reaches of the universe, on the outer edge of a galaxy of a hundred thousand million suns, deep within a cluster of slowly forming planets, a small sphere of just the right size lies in the right distance from its mother star, cooling in the coldness of space. Try to imagine. A volcano loudly erupts and the lava quickly flows down its sides. Now that sphere's creation continues as countless volcanoes spew clouds of gas and steam into the sky of melted mineral formations. Steam rises from the hardened lava on the ground. And then that cloud-covered planet waits and waits and waits until finally those clouds of gas and steam condense and rain upon that planet. Lightning strikes, thunder roars, and the rain pours. It hits the hot ground and more steam rises. Rain upon that planet Earth, and they rain and rain and range. The deluge. Rain continues to pour, and then we see a large waterfall. A deluge of such magnitude that the world's greatest waterfalls flowing together for more than a million years would only just begin to approach its results. For when it finally stopped, the seas had been born. The water stops, a few drips fall into a puddle, and then the camera pans up to see the ocean with the sun setting in the background. Seas that would make this planet unlike any other within the realm of our knowledge— For it was there, sheltered from the cosmic radiation, that the means to support life on Earth was able to emerge. Tiny single-celled plants, phytoplankton, they capture the energy of the sun and convert it into the most basic of life-sustaining elements, oxygen, creating more than half the Earth's supply. But more than that, those same seas interact with the same solar energy and the Earth's rotation to serve as the engine that drives all the world's weather. We see a blue sky and a palm tree followed by a beachfront. Then dark clouds quickly move into the beach area and then disappear. Yet these phenomenon occur only at the first few hundred feet of the seas that average greater than two miles in depth. And it is there in those depths in an endless night, darker than the darkest light on land, that we are just now beginning to explore an amazing world. There, amid raging underwater storms and fiery underwater volcanoes, mountain ranges that dwarf the Himalayas and gorges four times deeper than the Grand Canyon, there, two miles deep in that darkness, an amazing world. The screen then goes black, and every few seconds it lights up, showing a new shot of the deep ocean floor. Each time it lights up, a sound similar to that heard on a submarine is heard. We see strange organisms and plants, rocky formations, and vents that erupt gas and steam. A world where the cold sea pours deep into the mountain's warm core through immense cracks in its surface and then rises back to the ocean floor as a superheated, mineral-laden fluid emitting what to us would be lethal concentrations of poisonous chemicals. Yet incredibly, around these strange vents, exotic life forms flourish. Life forms that have astonished biologists by feeding, finding the needs for their survival, not in photosynthesis in the sun, but in the chemicals of the earth itself. 
chemosynthesis, an ecosystem like none other on the earth, until now scientifically inconceivable, yet there, nevertheless, deep beneath the sea, waiting for our discovery, waiting in a world where we've spent less time than on the surface of the moon, a world we've only just begun to explore with tools we've only just begun to imagine. A man submersible glides through the water, studying the depths of the sea. Tolls with which we'll go where no one has gone before, searching the seas for the knowledge they conceal and the resources they hold for answers to our past and keys to our future. What kind of future will it be? A computer-generated sea base appears, and the camera zooms in closer and then through a door into a large research room, down a hallway into another room, where three video images of undersea creatures appear on small screens. The camera zooms right to and through the third one. Try to imagine, just for a moment, a future of amazing technological creativity, a future of incredible adventure and discovery, a future of remarkable awareness of understanding. We now see a computer-generated wire-framed image model of the Living Seas Pavilion, and then a computer-generated view of three doors. The computer graphics change to a shot of the real doors that are the entrance to the sea base Hydrolators. Try to imagine, for we welcome you now to take the first steps into that future. We welcome you to the living seas. We welcome you to Seabase Alpha. The doors to the side of the theater automatically open. Signs above the doors illuminate and read Hydrolators to Seabase now boarding. Seabase Alpha to surface control. All hydrolators pressurized and prepared for boarding. 10-4, sea base. Hydrolators now boarding for departure to visitor center at sub-level 5. Control clear. Sea base alpha, clear. Several dispatches between sea base crew are heard, while guests walk into the hydrolator loading area or boarding room. This area was designed to be sparse with an industrial look sporting overhead pipes and suspended walkways over bubbling pools of water. The concept was that the three hydrolators were elevators that took guests down to the ocean to a sea base, the first sea base, so it was named Sea Base Alpha. Each hydrolator held approximately 12 guests who were intentionally loaded tightly. When the hydrolator doors closed, the lighting would dim, the floor would drop slightly, and the rockwork seen outside the windows would rise up, and bubbles would float up past the window, and the hydrolator floor would vibrate. The hydrolator indicator panel would show the depth as guests descended to the sea base. Now let's step aboard a hydrolator for our descent to sea base alpha. Ladies and gentlemen, please choose hydrolator one, two, or three. Then when the hydrolator doors have opened completely, take small children by the hand as you walk across the entryway. Watch your step as you board, and please move all the way into the hydrolator to allow room for others. Hydrolator number one, two, or three, descending to sea base alpha. <laughs> Roger, number one, two, or three, notify when cleared at the docking port. Docking port cleared. Sea Base Alpha, Hydrolator on approach. 
There's a long pause. The lights on the panel illuminate, showing the current depth as we descend. Hydrolator number one, two, or three in lockout chamber, pressurized and prepared for guest arrival. Upon our arrival, guests exit out of the other side of the hydrolator and into the Caribbean Coral Reef's ride queue. These were commonly called sea cabs, and it was not uncommon for guests to complain their ears had popped during the descent due to the change in pressure. So, Craig, when you were when you went on this, did you did you feel that effect as you descended? Did you did you I, believe? I, mean, I in was the, young. The I, I was young, so I definitely believed in it fully. Uh, but I mean, that's also the magic of Disney when you're right at that that perfect age. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going to act like I didn't. I I truly thought we were going so far down and was was terrified of it because the idea of the the waters and ocean caving in on me and inevitable death. Yeah, that that just kind of <laughs> took over. <laughs> Um, and kudos to you for all the different roles you're playing here. On, it's on the not show. over it, yet. No, if, no it is I, not. If, if there was some sort roles. of, if there was a podcast award, you know, for you know, best supporting actor or something, you would definitely get. You'd you'd get nominated for it. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say I would get nominated. There are a lot of good storytelling podcasts out there where they play roles, and so I, I'd be happy for the nomination. I don't need to win. <laughs> so, so we enter the queue and board small, slowly moving blue vehicles, and the sign reads "Sea Base Cabs Now Boarding to Sea Base Alpha." Now boarding is in orange and is blinking, and we hear the safety announcements. The moving platform is traveling at the same speed as your vehicle. Please take young children by the hand, look down, and watch your step onto the platform. Please take young children by the hand and watch your step onto the moving platform. The platform and your vehicle are traveling at equal speed. The sea cabs traveled at 1.7 feet per second. After leaving Sea Base Alpha's entry hall, they make a quick right turn into a tunnel on the floor of the Living Sea's huge aquarium tank. The tunnel has large acrylic windows on either side of the sea cabs that provided views into the tank and smaller panels above the cabs so guests could see into the tank above them. The tunnel took guests directly into the center of the circular tank. It would then meet up with the second floor main observation deck of Sea Base Alpha, take another right-hand turn and go along the observation deck's walkway back to the edge of the tank. Their guests disembarked and entered Sea Base Alpha. The Sea Cab ride was brief and did not contain any show scenes other than the marine life in the tank and the occasional chatter and audio of Commander Fulton. Occasionally, you may see a scuba diving Mickey Mouse in the tank. Now let's board our Sea Cab Omnimover vehicle. Some background dispatches are heard towards the beginning as we pass by the Sea Cab maintenance bay, and then the vehicles proceed into a tunnel. Through large windows on both sides and smaller windows above, we can see the creatures living in the tank. Then the vehicles enter a large circular-shaped room and move around three-quarters of it. Usually only one of the following two vocal segments is heard. Control, this is base. We have incoming sea cabs on final approach to visitor center. <laughs> Roger, base. We have radar contacts on sea cabs. 
will advise upon arrival. Ah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Commander Fulton. On behalf of our crew, I'd like to welcome you to Sea Base Alpha. I hope your descent from the surface was enjoyable. Right now, on final approach to the visitor center, your sea cab is passing through part of our beautiful coral reef community. Commander Fulton, you have a call on line one. Ten four. Uh, we have quite a variety of marine life living within our base of operation, which is the largest of its kind in the world. Down here, we see everything from sharks to dolphins, lobsters to pufferfish. You might even spot a moray eel or two lurking beneath the coral. But not to worry, they all get along just fine, even with our divers. Anyway, we'll see you shortly. Enjoy your visit to Sea Base Alpha. Oh, that Commander Fulton sounds like he's an old salt of the sea there. <laughs> I That's what um, I was going for. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You were very successful. This narration was changed in the fall of 1999 to the following. Right now, you are passing through our coral reef community, one of the largest of its kind in the world. You might even see all sorts of sea creatures here from shrimp to sharks. The living community provides the main focus for our research. There are two levels at Sea Base Alpha open to visitors. Your sea cab will be arriving at the main level. Make sure you visit our deep sea exploration module on the main level. Here you can try out wetsuits used by our deep sea divers. See if you've got the right stuff to explore the deep. Join our marine mammal researchers on level two and study those gentle giants of the sea, the manatee. Experience a very different sort of farming in our aquaculture research lab on level two. The underwater observation deck on level two provides a window on our cutting-edge dolphin communication research activities. It's also best to place the observe. It's also the best place to observe life among our coral reef. While there, catch one of the regularly scheduled marine research presentations. For times and topics, check the duty roster outside the observation deck. Information about all activities here at Seabase Alpha can be found at Seabase Link Terminals located throughout the base. Yeah, is that, is that a bottle of rum there I see? Kind just, of I don't know what I'm going for, <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm, I, I've, I've lost it at this point. It was very good. The vehicle then turns towards the unload tunnel, and we hear the safety announcements. Please gather your belongings and step out to your right. Your vehicle and the moving platform are traveling at equal speed. Please collect all your belongings and step out to your right. The moving platform is traveling at the same speed as your vehicle. After exiting the sea cabs, we are now in the center of the ground floor in Sea Base Alpha's visitor center. Suspended overhead is a full-scale model of a deep rover, one-person submersible, which can attain depths of up to 3,500 feet. This area is designed to look like an underwater observation and research facility, with airlocks separating different areas of the complex. There are circular theme modules designed to look as if they were added in they were added in pieces, like a space station, and could be separated and replaced with new modules. The sea base had two levels to explore, so let's explore the first level. So first there's the wave tank, and this 24-foot-long tank displayed how waves form and how those waves affect the ocean floor and the beach. This was removed in 1999. The dive lockout chamber. Every half hour, divers either entered or exited the main tank through this chamber. 
Long acrylic tube extended from the um, mechanics of the base chamber itself and into the ceiling of the pavilion. On command, the tube would fill with water or drain. Um, this allowed the diver to either swim down through the tube or to the lockout compartment and exit, or to enter the compartment and then swim up and out. Divers demonstrated the latest in wetsuit and air tank technology. An assistant explained the process to guests and allowed them to ask questions. This ended in 1999 and was covered over, but it was rehabbed and reopened in July, around July and August of 2001. Module 1A was labeled Ocean Ecosystems, and it included a Pacific Coast kelp forest with a central display tube that went up to the second level. There was a Pacific Coral Lagoon. It was 3,000 gallons of water containing starfish, sea anemone, small fish, and hermit crabs. There was a predator tank with grouper, barracuda, connet head sharks, and green moray eels. There was the web of life with phytoplankton, zooplankton, and filter feeders. There were other freestanding tanks, and they explained camouflage, symbiotic relationships, and bioluminescence. Then there was the sea-based link terminals, and these replaced um, the sea-based challenge terminals in 2000. Module 1B was the Marine Mammal Research Center. This module allows underwater viewing of the West Indian manatees, and the research tank is on the second level. Module 1C was Earth Systems, and that included what on Earth? A map that marks underseas volcanoes, faults, the ring of fire, and with lights that illuminate when the corresponding button is pressed. There's an animated atlas of the world, a six-and-a-half-minute animated video explaining the ocean's effect on the Earth's weather conditions. There's clues to an age-old mystery. This display shows a sample of the Earth's core. There is an anatomy of the sea. This large tube shows what the ocean is made up of. And there's also the sea-based link terminals for this module. Module 1D is Undersea Exploration. It included Jason. This was an audio animatronic version of the real Jason that was created by Bob Ballard. We know, um, you know, found the wreckage of the Titanic, amongst other things. It explained how robots can explore the depths of the ocean. The real Jason is a remotely operated underwater robot. There's the gym suit, and this, this is the one complete suit is on display. And then there were two cutaway suits so that we can try to turn an arrow, push a lever, turn a wheel, and shift a gear using the counterbalance for weightless effect um, using manipulator hands. Now, a real gym suit is an atmosphere diving suit designed to maintain interior pressure of one atmosphere against any exterior pressures. Now let's go up to level two. This is the observation deck. So this allows viewing of the main tank. This deck led to the middle of the tank. So more than 6,000 fish live in the man-made coral reef environment. Animals on display include dolphins, sharks, diamond rays, reef fish, schools of butterfly and angelfish, fish, blue chromis, barracudas, snappers, and parrotfish. 
diver and research shows um, will use overhead audio address systems to communicate with um, guests. There are two C-based Link Living Seas online database terminals here that were installed in the fall of 1999. Module 2A is the Ocean Resources Sea Lab. This is the Pacific Coast Kelp Forest. It's the same as Module 1A. This tank is the top of the kelp forest display from below. Experiments were carried out at the um, Mariculture um, Hatchery that's found here. The Mariculture Lab displays techniques for underwater farming of plants and animals. A marine biologist was often available for questions. Here, the, there are sea-based link terminals. These replaced half of the sea-based challenge terminals in 2000. So there were still the, some sea-based challenge terminals here. They had quizzes with A, B, C, and D push buttons for answering the questions. Module 2B were about marine animals. And this is a view of the manatees from above. Um, marine mammal specialists working with the manatees would often talk about the animals and answer questions. So very different from what we experience today in there. So Craig, when you, as a little boy, did you, what, what did you think of all this? I'm going to be completely honest. I don't ever remember exploring most of these areas when I was a kid. Uh, I, I have distinct memories of eating inside coral reef and that was our that was our observation <laughs> viewing mm-hmm. of everything and I remember doing the attraction portion like I I remember seeing the show I remember skipping the show and going straight to the hydrolators I remember everything through that but I I just have the distinct memory of I can imagine getting out of the attraction seeing the the big dive tube in front of you when you're coming out and then that's where my memory ends i can i'm i'm sure we probably walked right out the door because by that point in time my sister and i were probably frustrated or my parents smartly you know planned the attraction right after we just ate at living seas or at the coral reef so we probably weren't like oh yeah we need to we need to see more animals in the living seas but yeah i i I don't remember any of the little specialty areas like I, i can remember when i was on my college program I remember going to see the manatees and obviously that's all the way in 2010. And I think that was my first time even ever making it up to those manatees. So uh, I, I feel like I missed out on a lot, but I'll have to check with my parents to see if we ever went, uh, went deeper into it. But uh, after, after having some discussions over Christmas, I'm starting to find out that I actually have a better memory of my childhood than my parents now. <laughs> so I finally, I'm getting to that yeah, point. I, so I'm, I'm going to say I didn't really explore that. it. <laughs> I, I can understand that. When, when Carol and I took our children there, cause our children are roughly your age too. Mm-hmm. So they grew up in the same generation. Um, they, they were really into all the hands-on displays that were in Epcot Center at the time. They did all of them over and over again. Now, I think my son thought a lot of them were video games. And I don't know how much he absorbed, how much information he absorbed, but he loved pushing buttons. And um, But they did all of these. And our daughter, who now works with animals as her career, loved this pavilion. and. Um, and, and, you know, and I remember we, t- we, 
did we we the presentations they did at the manatees we went to but we did everything in here and it was a lot of fun it it was fascinating you know i i can remember spending time at the end of uh imagination in in that uh in that area like i can remember that for sure and i can remember being interested in a couple areas in wonders of life but basically if we were in there it was for body wars or, or cranium command because once i started watching snl i was all about cranium command and seeing all the the same actors in that so for some reason with the the seas and some of the other pavilions i guess i just didn't attach onto it as much but mm-hmm. I, I think you know i probably by the time i would have been spending more time at these uh at the, all the games and little exhibits and learning more about it it might have been when i started developing my uh distaste for the ocean and water in general. <laughs> so I still, I still took baths. I need to make that clear and, <laughs> well, and eventually true. showers. It's more the idea of like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that can eat me. So I want to stay away from it. Yeah. The last time we took our daughter to Epcot, um, she was an adult. And the one thing she said she wanted to do to Epcot at Epcot is she wanted to eat in the coral reef. That was like her big yeah. thing because she had such a good memory of this pavilion and the coral reef was when they were little, the coral reef was a good restaurant. And so um, it it had good food that we could remember anyway. And, um, but she just loved watching the fish and all that as we ate. So I I still love it. And I, you know, I know it's not the greatest and you're paying a lot for that view, but it is a magnificent view. And it, Mm -hmm. it felt like the largest, largest restaurant in the world as a kid and it felt like that tank was so massive in front of you and now as an adult like you walk in there and it's like oh yeah it's cute it's a nice little viewing window on there but it is it's still so one of a kind and there's nothing like uh there's nothing like watching what you could be potentially eating in a few minutes i'm (laughs) definitely a fan of that. that that did actually that bothered my daughter that we were ordering <laughs> seafood. <laughs> uh, I, I was not allowed to eat uh, lobsters at Red Lobster, but I was always that that fan of like knowing that one day I'll walk in here and I'll select a lobster. And now I haven't been in a Red Lobster in 15 years. So, yeah, uh, I don't remember the last take time that. I was at one. <laughs> anyway, now I've been mentioning the Seabase, uh, and it, was, it said Seabase.link terminals. Um, they replaced <clears throat> the Seabase Challenge terminals in 1999 and 2000. Let's talk a little more about them. These, it was called Seabase.link Living Seas Online Database Terminals. And these were a significant upgrade from the original Seabase Challenge terminals. So the Seabase link, um, features um, a video screen with Living Seas logo floating in water, a touch screen of the screen bubbles up, an overhead look of Seabase Alpha, and then the view swings around to the side where the three levels of the computer animated map separate for a better view. So selecting the main level allows you to continue to explore the four modules. The module in which you're standing is pointed out to you. And then you can select a module, view pictures and some video of sea life in the module and read a short summary of the featured creatures. And some modules features game or puzzles. So this is why my, I think my children got really enjoyed these modules. 
Um, Level two or the observation level provides further exploration into the two modules plus the underwater observation deck. So in the observation deck section, you can view and get more information about each of the species in the base's coral reef community. And selecting the third level or the crew level, as it's labeled, allows you to get more information about guest programs such as Dive Quest, Disney's Dolphins in Depth, and the Making a Difference Wildlife Conservation Program at both the Living Seas and Disney's Animal Kingdom. So now that we've explored Sea Base Alpha, it's time for us to return to the surface. After following the Sea Base exit signs, we're in a small room with three hydrolator doors in front of us. Signs in between the hydrolator doors say the Living Seas exit the Epcot Center. The word center was removed in the fall of 1999. To the left of the doors is a large lit sign that says, thank you for visiting the Living Seas presented by United Technologies. And the United Technologies logo is on it. Below that, it says automotive, building systems, and aerospace. And above each is a picture of that field. This large lighted sign was replaced with a giant picture of a wave crashing. And the words, thank you for visiting the Living Seas and the Living Seas logo in the fall of 1999, when all references to United Technologies were removed after they dropped their sponsorship of the pavilion. To the right of the hydrolators are two plaques. One lists all of the consultants and advisors on the pavilion. The other plaque has the American Society of Civil Engineers logo and reads, The Living Sea Civil Engineering Achievement of Merit 1987, awarded by American Society of Civil Engineers. We then hear the safety announcements. Once the hydrolator doors have opened completely, take small children by the hand and please watch your step as you board, moving all the way into the hydrolator to allow room for others boarding behind you. Ladies and gentlemen, when the hydrolator doors have opened completely, take small children by the hand and watch your step as you board, and please move all the way into the hydrolator to allow room for others. Once the doors open, we move into the hydrolator and the doors shut. These hydrolators are slightly larger than the ones we came down on, and these do not have the windows on the sides. Instead, there is an overhead porthole that gets lighter and brighter as we near the sunny surface of the ocean. The lights dim and we hear this announcement. On behalf of United Technologies, we'd like to thank you for visiting Sea Base Alpha. As you can tell, there's a real spirit of adventure down here. With the help of modern technology, we feel there's really no limit to what can be accomplished. Thanks for coming down. United Technologies looks forward to seeing you again here in the Living Seas. This narration was changed in the fall of 1999 to the following. Thank you for visiting Seabase Alpha and exploring the wonders of the living seas. Please come back and visit us again soon. There is always something new and exciting for you to discover here at Seabase Alpha. The doors open and we return to the sunny surface of future world. So, Craig, now that you've re-experienced this through the through the I don't know the technology of live theater here. So what are your thoughts of, of this original version of the living seas compared to what we have now? <sighs> it's tough because 
Uh, on the one hand, I do think that there was a special uh, charm to this original version of the Living Seas and and how this pavilion was set up. Uh, I, I really do think that in terms of uh, infotainment, I think it kind of it kind of nailed it. Uh, the way the the first video presented it, and you get the excitement from the hydrolators, you get the excitement from an attraction where you're literally cruising through a giant tank and then you know what plenty of plenty of learning opportunities afterwards but at the same time too when you when you think about the current state of epcot that we're in uh it, it made a lot of sense to infuse finding nemo with the seas and it, it's a cute little attraction and at the end of it you know you still get you, you get some good tank moments and i feel like the cast members who work at the seas uh, really want you to go in and explore around that area and they always have a good amount of cast members out that are willing to help answer questions and talk and really really try to get you more interested in what's happening around so i feel feel like in the current Disney that we 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 deal with, uh, I, I feel like the current Seas with Nemo and Friends accomplishes a lot. Uh, I, I would like to see a little bit more from the prior version if they look at uh, if they look at this pavilion for some remodeling one day. I, I'm just going to say it. I, I would be happy to get rid of Turtle Talk and utilize that space for something that is maybe a little bit more back on the infotainment side, maybe a little bit of an interactive experience where you're learning more, not just in like a little comedy routine. Not that you can't learn something from it, but I, I feel like there's a there's some ways that they could still plus it up to at least uh, return back to more of the the original spirit of the attraction without necessarily throwing away all the Disney Pixar touches that they've added to it. But uh, the, the first version of the attraction definitely had something, something about it that worked, but you know, it, it was never going to last that way with the, with the, I mean, with the direction that Disney went, but arguably too, we could also sit here and say, well, if it wasn't for successes like, Nemo and friends at the seas, then maybe the Epcot that we now have wouldn't even exist. It might be part of the problem that led us down this uh, path. So uh, you can look at it multiple ways, but the original was was pretty cool. Yeah, I preferred the original and maybe just because the current living seas with Nemo and friends is more geared to younger children, to, to children and the Living Seas, I felt, was geared to old generations, the original version. So um, so I wouldn't mind okay. seeing it put in some of the, you know, edutainment, infotainment elements back in. Yeah. You know, I, and it, you keep Nemo and friends. That's fine. And <laughs> they, you know. they do have some. I, I think it's important to point out when – when everyone's talking about like conservation and and such, I think a lot of times people jump immediately towards animal kingdom uh, because there will be stories out every now and then about, uh, you know, about how animal kingdom and the animal care teams there have AZA accreditation. And it's important to note too, that uh, that's the, the association of zoos and aquariums and, uh, it's important to note that the seas also has that exact same accreditation. So uh, if you want to sit there and question the, the moralities of the seas existence, 
you know, you can the same way as SeaWorld because SeaWorld's also part of the AZA, but uh, it's what it, it means is that they exceed the standards in education, conservation, and research. They at least meet or succeed them. So they are they are doing something right to be able to get mm-hmm. that AZA accreditation. And, you know, it also, it goes alongside like OSHA considers AZA like the national standard when you're talking about zoos and aquariums. So they are doing something right there, but I, I don't want them to just do something right. I would like them to do more. And I, I talked a little bit about my experience with a cast member taking us to that observation area. And I, I left that experience uh, telling the cast member who was nice enough to take us there. I was like, I wish, I wish everyone had the chance to, you know, see this area, but not only that, have, have a chance to sit and talk with someone like you who's so passionate about the seas and explaining all the good that they do there, how much effort goes into maintaining that tank and making sure that, you know, every single fish is fed because that's part of what they have to do there. They are, they are feeding each individual one. They're not, sometimes they might eat each other, but it's not like that's what the sharks aren't swimming around, just eating the fish nonstop. They, they work so hard to make sure that doesn't happen and make sure that the fish are there for years and are safe and healthy. And, uh, you know, it's, they do a lot of good there. And I think, I, I think that's, it's always worth keeping in mind that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's doing it's doing a lot there. I just I would always mm-hmm. like more, but that's what we expect from Disney. We always want more. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I've done so many of the um, backstage experiences, like the at the Animal Kingdom. Yeah, I definitely want to check out the ones at the Living Seas too. I, I know yeah, I would enjoy those. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I highly highly recommend getting to go back there and see it. It's not glamorous by any means um it's probably worse than you would expect when you're thinking about a giant aquarium but i you spend a little bit of time there and you just you have such a greater appreciation for it and you want to just dive right in especially when you see other people (laughs) diving in and uh (laughs) dolphins swimming just like i want to they they want to play with me i know it (laughs) Uh, it's, it's a cool time Well, in 1987, the Living Seas Pavilion won the prestigious Outstanding Civil Engineering Achievement Award from the American Society of Civil Engineers. This award honors projects that illustrate superior civil engineering skills and represents a significant contribution to civil engineering progress and society and recognizes the contributions of multiple engineers. However, by the mid-1990s, problems with the initial design of the pavilion manifested themselves, and that is where we will pick up our story next time. Now it's time for This Week in Disney History. So, Craig, would you like to uh, start out? I would be more than happy to start out, Michael, and I'm going to start out on December. Sorry, not December. (laughs) We're in January (laughs) now, aren't we? Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Michael, I made a huge mistake. I chose my date for December. So give me a second. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I I thought it was a typo. I thought it was a typo. And then I looked at it and I was like, nope, that 
says December pretty clearly right in the text, too. So <laughs> why don't you go first? Okay. Well, of course, I could go with January 15th, 1986, because that is when the Living Seas opened at Disney's Walt Disney World's Epcot. So there was a method to my madness here starting out with, uh, you know, with uh, the Living Seas history here. But um, but also on January 15th, but 1955, Walt Disney decided that, you know, in the original plans for Disneyland, there was Tomorrowland. But then they decided, well, they'll work on Tomorrowland in the next phase because they just didn't have the time at this point or even the money. But six months now before the opening of Disneyland, on January 15th, 1955, Walt Disney decides they're going to build Tomorrowland. So they have six months to figure out what's going in Tomorrowland and to build it and have it ready for opening day. And when we've, t- when we've talked about the remarkable engineering achievement of the Living Seas, just a remarkable achievement of building a Tomorrowland in six months which, albeit it didn't have a lot in there, you know, it had Utopia and, you know, a few other things in there. But, um, you know, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and, yeah. and then when you think that all of Disneyland was built in a year and a day, you know, that's pretty remarkable. But, you know, times are different in those <laughs> days, and only one person was making all the decisions. So, um, anyway, so so that's my... Those are that's that's what I have for this week in Disney history. Excellent ones, and my new one that's not in December is a real good one. I promise you that, uh, and it'll tie into something that we'll probably talk about even more in another second. But uh, on January, not December, January sixteenth of nineteen ninety four, uh, the Walt Disney World Resort hosted its very first marathon and this was uh made up of about 8500 runners from around the world and since then it has grown into a magnificent beast uh that just i feel like will never lose any popularity spanned even more races throughout the years uh Coming over, coming back to Disneyland after some years off with a half marathon, and uh, who knows? Maybe one day they'll go back to Paris because that was a race they did at one point in time. Maybe it goes even further than that, but uh, it spawned a huge part of the company with Run Disney, and uh, yeah, all started just so easily back in 1994 with not a lot of runners, which are like, yeah, I, I, it, people would lose their minds if I think they could run the marathon with only like 8,500. Cause I think this year it was around something like maybe like 16,000 were in the marathon. So, and you, uh, and you were one of those people, you and that, Kylie, right? Let's not get crazy. We were half marathoners, and because okay. of the weather that came through, we were technically uh, 7.1ers. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I we heard that. I saw that it rained. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a bummer. Uh, but no, it was it was our first time actually participating in the marathon weekend, though. Uh, it's we've done the, some of the spring races. We've done wine and dine in November. And uh, yeah, we, we've done all of those races. And we really wanted to get the special coast to coast medal that you could only get if you do the half marathon or full marathon. This, you know, the weekend that we did it and then the upcoming Disneyland uh, half 
like you that's the only way to get this first medal and they're like yeah we we have to do that it's it's a gonna be a grueling two weeks back to back it's gonna be worse for people who ran the full and then have to go run a half marathon it's gonna be even worse for people who did a a goofy or a dopey challenge and then go to disneyland but uh, we wanted to to take part in the in the specialness of of being able to do those two races back to back so we finally just gave in and said let's do something during the the marathon weekend and it definitely more intense uh felt like there was more people cheering along the courses than the other races uh definitely a lot more people than the the half marathon weekends that they do at other times throughout the year so i'm happy i got to do it and i'll i'll be back to it eventually so uh, next time next time i participate in a marathon weekend it will hopefully be because i'm actually running a marathon so I mean, maybe yeah, that's exciting. Year train for it. Take care of your knees. So <laughs> I luckily my knees are still pretty good. It's it's my hips that I need to start working oh, okay. out a little bit more. They get my hips get sore first, and uh, my my knees have pretty decent recovery. But you know, I'm not going to do this forever. I'm 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 not going to be one of those guys that's you know 60 years old, 65, and still out doing them. I'm I'm giving myself until 50 to to achieve all my running goals and then then i will gladly accept my beer belly (laughs) (laughs) my sister-in-law and her daughter are in the disneyland one i think they they have a 5k i think or a 10k yeah and they're in one of those yep 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 5k on friday 10k on saturday and then the half marathon on sunday Mm -hmm. now are you in those we are doing the 10k and yeah and the half marathon um that's so that because it's the dumbo challenge and since dumbo is one of my favorite characters uh i can't pass that up so have to have to be able to get a dumbo medal plus the other medals plus the coast to coast so that's gonna be just layered in in whatever metal they use that hopefully we find out doesn't have asbestos probably like all of the living seas does <laughs> oh well hopefully during the refurbishments they've taken care of that yeah. so yeah, what else did you would, do during <laughs> i guess it would be uh, lead not uh not asbestos <laughs> but still <laughs> so what else did you do during our holiday hiatus I, I mean, I, I put a lot of work in before uh, before we hit kind of our time where the Diz Unlimited uh, kind of, you know, took a little bit of break as people on our team were traveling. I, I was able to catch up on a couple movies. So I, I fell very far behind in everything I wanted to see in theaters. And and I, I knocked off a couple good ones. So I, I feel like I was I was very accomplished. And I still have another another two or three that I'd, I'd love to check out. Uh, but you know, there's, there's always time. So it's yeah. as long as I get to see the, the ones that will be nominated for like the Oscars before, uh, before that ceremony happens, I'll, I'll be okay. But I feel like I've got a good start right now. Good. Good. I missed seeing wish in the theater. So I have to wait for it to go on streaming. I heard that Disney's going to re-release some of the films they released directly to video during the pandemic like lucas and and, because they're going to be releasing them to theaters so i'm very excited about that 
So that, it, I, I like, think that's such a good decision and all because, you know, there was definitely a lot of uh, there was a lot of tension with Pixar that, you know, their movies were not getting the big screen treatment and it, it had to hurt their feelings. And I know they're getting paid regardless, but you, you make this art that's meant to be seen in this one medium on a big screen and to then not have the opportunity to have it shown that way you're going to feel insulted by it. So I'm so happy that that yeah, Disney's think, making this decision. I think soul is another one. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is Encanto one? Cause no, Encanto was, one of those, was, Encanto was, in was released for like two weeks or something. And then well, the pandemic it, hit. That was so onward was in theaters for a couple weeks. And then oh, onward. Okay. Happened. Encanto was released at that weekend of Destination D in 2021. That was part of our the, oh, we the weekend and for us. Right. And the You're problem right. was it just it didn't I won't say it tanked because it didn't, but it did not do well. And then I think it was Christmas. They decided to, you know, release Thanksgiving and then say, okay, let's rush and get it out for Christmas. And then it blew up on Disney Plus, which that's where I'm like Elemental did the same thing this year. Yeah. It, yeah, it's and like I'm the like, number number one film streamed apparently. Oh yeah, so, huge, yeah. huge. I don't mm-hmm. know why they haven't put Wish out yet. And like, I maybe they don't want to accept and cut the losses. Like, luckily for me, it's still showing at at Disney Springs at the AMC, and it'll probably be showing for for a little bit longer. I probably have another month that it'll be in theaters, so I can see it the right way. But I feel like they're missing a they're gonna miss their window on putting it on Disney Plus. And still getting people to to stream it nonstop because like Elemental that they didn't they didn't really rush that to Disney Plus and I can only imagine how much more of a juggernaut it would have been if they would have put it on Disney Plus sooner. So I, I know it goes against what they want. They want those tickets in the theaters. They want that box office number. But you also have to accept that you have conditioned an audience to expect things to come to Disney plus and they're already paying for that subscription. So they don't need to, they don't need to go see it in theaters because they know it's coming eventually. Just give them what they they want. Do you think they can uncondition people? Like, do you think they would, the films would do better in the theater if we knew we had to wait months instead of weeks for it to be streaming? (laughs) I think it would have to be so drastic. It would have to be like when I was growing up and, you know, obviously in the era of VHS and stuff where it was, you were waiting a solid nine months to a year for something to finally come out after theaters. And you never knew how long a movie was going to run in theaters. It might just keep going and going and going. And that delays the the home video release even longer. So I, I think that's, that's the only way is to, for them to have a, you know, uh, have a big stiff back about it and say, you know what, we're not backing down. It'll come out in theaters and we're not going to release it on home media until nine months. And at that point it'll be on Disney plus. So for the first nine months, if the only way you want to see it is if the only way you'll be able to see it is theater. So if you want to see it, you'll see it then they can try that. And if it fails, then, then they realize it's not, it, it's, I, they can't either uncondition people or it's they're just not telling stories anymore that people want to hear. But 
again, Elemental is a perfect example of they are still telling stories that people want to see. And Encanto's an example of it. They have they have examples that they're they're doing some mm-hmm. things right. Now, from what I hear with Wish, that is not a good example for this. And the no, story I, won't connect even on Disney Plus. But they've got yeah, to we'll they've see. got to make a bold choice. Yeah, I I, I think so. I, I think they have to rethink some of their films and the audiences they're targeting and all yeah, that. I, but um because I think some of the audiences they're targeting aren't aren't groups that go to Disney films or go to Disney parks. So I think they have to re-examine that. So, yeah. um, but and, anyway. Yeah. Even on the Marvel front, I mean, we know the uh, past couple Marvel movies haven't done great. And now that entire cinematic universe is thrown in the, just what will happen now because of everything with Jonathan majors. And I, it's just, you're now looking at what used to be their, their safety net that would always save them now mm-hmm. being a potential a disastrous part of the company as well too, cost yeah. because those movies cost so much money and then not making their money back. That's just, they, they can't operate like that for too long. And, you know, as much as I enjoyed seeing the Marvels in theater is good movie. I don't know how many more I can take too. And I'm, I like them. I enjoy them, but when I have to start choosing, am I going to see this movie that I'm more interested in or another Marvel movie? Because I've seen all the Marvel movies. Eventually I'm going to start gravitating towards other new original stories that I haven't seen yet. Like if I know you probably haven't seen it, but Godzilla minus one has been the best action movie of the year. So I heard good. it's excellent. Oh, it was incredible. Even if you're not a Godzilla fan, I I am. I'm not like I'm not super deep. You know, I've seen all the classics at least once, and mm-hmm. I, I I always watch a new one when it comes out. But I'm not like the I can't name every single fact about Godzilla through the years. But it was it was just one of the best action movies. I, I've seen this past year period. Uh, just it, there's nothing I've seen with Marvel <laughs> that were even even necessarily parts of Star Wars that that matches the the cinematic spectacularness of it. So check I it out if you have a chance. Everybody I know has said they've really enjoyed that film. Yeah, yeah. So, so good. Um, who saw it? Yeah. So I saw a couple of films, but just sort of ran out of time. But so yeah. So during the break, besides you know reading researching and all that putting up christmas decorations i you know i I just connected with friends you know went to lunch you know things like that yeah so um saw family and things so it was nice it was a very nice break i did go to disneyland the first weekend in december had a wonderful time i've now you know i've done it a few times genie plus i i'm sorry as much as i hate it and loathe it and despise it i appreciate it because mm-hmm. I I experienced way more of Disneyland than I have in past years, and um, yeah. using it, so I and I hate that that it works, yeah. and and um, so it's like I feel like I, I've made a deal with the devil when I yeah, use it. it. But it just does work at Disneyland. I'm I'm happy that you know Rory's still too young really to ride the rides that genie plus would 
would work well on. And but then the hard part too is you get the photo pass, and we love taking photos of us. So we'll probably mm-hmm. do like one day where we buy Genie Plus, so we can get all our photo pass photos done that day, and you know use that for Haunted Mansion Holiday. But like in terms of rides that he can use it on, like it's you have Roger Rabbit and. Uh, no, he's too small for Roger Rabbit. You have Runaway Railway, and we can just do that here. Um, it's Small World is currently closed to go mm-hmm. back to regular version. So there's just not a lot that... There's uh, the Fantasyland rides, and most of them are not yeah. on it. Yeah, Exactly. So, yeah, we're, and, we're and not going to invest. Really, I really hate that they're putting Pirates of the Caribbean on Genie Plus yeah. because it's unnecessary. They did it for Little Mermaid, which was also unnecessary. And now the standby mm-hmm. line is ridiculous for it. Yeah. So, well, it, it, um, it does ruin it. I mean, it, it then if you have it, you're like, yeah, that's that's a breeze. That was better than if I would have been waiting in that standby line. But I mean, what, uh, there is no Disney fan out there who will say that it's a smart idea for Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know who they need to talk to, to to get it. All you have to do is go as a guest one day and be like, wow, Pirates of the Caribbean, when both lines are open and they're loading efficiently, this is one of the easiest and fastest attractions to get onto. It even is. in the middle of even the day, though, a 40-minute wait, even still the, super smooth. Even though the queue is long, it moves. It moves quickly. Yeah. So um, anyway... But I, I think that's just a show of greed right there that they're doing that. But I did I did manage to see the Candlelight Processional. And Brie Larson, speaking of Marvels, she was our guest narrator. And um, as I told people, there must have been somebody holding a gun to her head because she she just said it with – in the beginning, she said it with zero emotion. Just – she was just reading it like she had never seen this before and never heard of this before and had never been here before and all of that. And, um, and, and then when she, um, it was towards the end when they do, when they, when they like, she, she talked about the wonderful talent on the show. And then when they get to that part about peace and all of that in the, in, in the narration, and I know our narration's a little different than, than the Epcot one, but she talked about, she actually cheered up. She broke up. She showed emotion. When she got to that point, we talk about peace on earth and the meaning of the story and all that. Then she was fantastic. It was like she, she changed completely and the rest of the narration which unfortunately this was near the end the rest of the narration was wonderful and i don't know what was going on with her in the beginning she barely made eye contact in the beginning even with the audience and um it was weird really weird but overall candlelight was spectacular as usual at disneyland I really think it was probably nerves um, with her because she is a mega Disney fan, uh, mega like Disneyland fan. Um, Mm -hmm. She is like just beating down the gate to be at uh, the when there's something big opening. She wants to be there for it. Uh, She was at the media event for Galaxy's Edge, not 
not because they wanted special guests like her, because she asked to be there. Um, just a, a massive, massive, massive fan of the parks. And I bet she has watched the Candlelight Processional before and probably understood the gravitas of of and what it meant to be standing up at that stage. And I bet, I bet she was super nervous that she was mm-hmm. going to mess it up. And, you know, that probably caused her to stumble a little Maybe. bit. Maybe. I thought the, you'd think – You'd think that, you know, being an, the actress that she is, that she would have pulled through. But so anyway, so I'm hoping that for the second, I saw, I went through the whole rigmarole for the, to see the first showing. Cause that's when all the VIPs are there, like Bob Iger, who takes a photo from my vantage point. I saw somebody took a flash photo candlelight. Now it's dark there because this is in town square and it's outdoors took a flash photo with their with their with their cell phone it was bob Iger, of course <laughs> <laughs> and so i thought that was hilarious everybody turned and you know looked at him and all that stuff so i, I actually yeah. felt sorry for him but oh, he was probably uh, very anyway, embarrassed <laughs> i'm sure he was but uh anyway so i'm hoping then she maybe she was better at the other performances yeah. So um, she got through that one. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, you know, I'm no speaker, but I've seen a lot at Epcot, and you know, even if they're not massive celebrities, when you sometimes see that person in their first show, and they know what to expect, but it's different once they're up there reading it and you see them on the third day of their run at the, the one of the last shows and they're usually a complete different person. So I feel like that is a downside of Disneyland's. They don't, you know, you don't really have a lot of time to, to just get it right away. And you learn that celebrities while and actors, while you might think they can just turn it on immediately. It's, you know, they can't always do that. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm happy to and hear I, she at least warmed up at the end. She did. And she was excellent at the end. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I, I did meet a few listeners all along the way. So that was, that was very nice as well. So anyway, but great, Craig, it's good to um, have you back. And I want to thank all of our guest co-hosts in tw- uh, for 2023 that kept us rolling as um, we, you know, as we, we got through it and that, uh, and I'm sure we'll have them all back at some point for different shows and things like that. So, of course. um, Yep. But, but many thanks to, to everybody that filled in, um, what one, well, Craig was gone, um, bringing up his son. (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, so I used several resources for their episode in, in this episode, including the Epcot Explorers Encyclopedia, a guide to Walt Disney World's greatest theme park by R.A. Peterson, Walt Disney's Epcot Center, creating the new world of tomorrow, the text by Richard R. Beard, and Epcot, the first 30 years, an unofficial retrospective by Jeff Lang and Kevin Yee. There are some um, websites and articles that I used, including the Disney Wiki, The Living Seas, Park Lore, The Living Seas, The Nautical Tale of Epcot's Undersea Pavilion from Concept to Clownfish, and The Living Seas at Intercot.com. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? 
Uh, you can find me on various shows on the Diz Unlimited Podcast Network. You can find me uh, via, via email, uh, Craig at DisneyInfo.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at uh, Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can connect with me by sending me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. I'm at Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. Look for past episodes of Connecting Us Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. Roy.